Today's scripture reading is Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Thank you, Ellen, for reading. Um, I've, I've said this in the past, and I don't say lightly, this was the most important part of the whole service. Because it is through that word, through God's word, that anything can actually take place inside of our lives. So we, we, we need to truly focus on that. So would you join me in prayer right now as we approach the Lord and his word? Father, just thank you so much for this morning. As we look around, not only um, around this country, but around the globe, there's so much pain, so much suffering. And Father, we know that you came not only to, to give us salvation, but to give us abundant life in you. And we know that that life comes only through your word. So Father, this morning as we approach your, your text and we get to this special season, Christian season, where we celebrate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection a week from today, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you want us to take away from here. Father, I pray that you would remove me from this moment, that whatever I speak that doesn't belong to you, that you would erase from people's minds and hearts, and that we would leave here today just transformed and excited about living a life that's worth living for because of your son. So Father, we thank you once again Open our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. At, at this moment in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees had already realized that they were unable to cause the crowds to forsake Jesus. They had failed in their attempt to make sure that people understood that this guy was not who he claimed to be. They, they hated Jesus uh, for being popular. And the more that Jesus performed miracles and wonders, the hardened their hearts would become towards him. The confrontation with Jesus' deity on a 
day-to-day basis or a month-to-month basis or whatever that confrontation was where Pharisees and the religious leaders came together with him, the confrontation just by being in Jesus' presence caused them to understand that fear is the outcome of not being able to control something that's uncontrollable. And so they became jealous for what they did not possess They became angry and frustrated because they could not have the reverence that Jesus received from the people to themselves. So as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem and he's ready to enter the temple before his death a week from now, I want to tell you this morning that his entrance or his entry into Jerusalem will not be triumphant or triumphantly but it will be to fulfill God's word and God's perfect plan for not only Jesus, but for the outcome, which is the salvation he will offer to his people. On a surface surface level, uh, it seems that Jesus will be crowned to be the human king, the divine king, the conquering king by the people as he's approaching the temple. But from God's perspective, this event's gonna actually not be a triumphal entry, but it will be just as God ordained for Jesus before eternity passed. Now, let me give you some, some background here, and I want to focus some of our attention here before we dive into Mark 11. I want us to understand what's going on, because right now, we're going to jump into Mark 11, and there's 10 chapters that have taken place before this moment, and I just want to give you a few things so you can kind of understand where Mark is leading us if, if you were to divide, divide the book of Mark into some, some different areas, you would start in chapter 1, and you, you would go all the way to chapter 8, verse 30, and you would realize that what Mark's trying to do here in those first eight chapters, he's trying to describe Jesus' identity. He's trying to tell us who this Jesus actually is. And then in verse 31 of chapter 8, all the way up to verse six, uh, chapter 16 of Mark, Mark is going to actually tell us what the mission of this servant or this servant king really is. is. So there's two things, the identity and the mission. But the overall picture here that Mark's going to paint in his gospel is that Jesus is a servant king. Now, the text of Mark here starts, starts the final week of Jesus, as I said, and for some reason... This is the only time, actually, that Mark describes Jesus walking into Jerusalem. That the only time he records this, and this is only during the Passover week that's going to take place from now until next Friday. Now, think with me for a second here how ironic this actually is. Jesus is coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the the sins of the world, and he is going to enter Jerusalem to offer himself as the only sacrifice that can actually appease God's wrath forever. And he enters Jerusalem, and there's over probably two million people in the city at this moment, and no one recognizes him as a spotless Lamb of God. Mark 11 also describes the, the crowds attempt to, crowd, to crowd, uh, crown him as their king. And, and MacArthur says, and he has a really interesting point here, he says this, this is not true, a true expression of faith, praise, claim, and it is not God's coronation any more than it is a human coronation. 
What happened this day was a bizarre event because it was not like any other coronation of any other earthly king. The crowning of a king is not a humble event, it's not unexpected, unplanned, unofficial, but Jesus' arrival will prove to be all these things, not making this event the crowning of the true king. Now, how do we know this to be true? If we were to do some, some biblical theology here, you go to the book of Acts and you realize in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, that's the, his ascension passage in there, you will realize that from that point on, the New Testament writers will actually focus on what it means to be crowned as, crowned as a king because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, here's what the author says. It says this in verse 12 of chapter 10. But when this, this priest which is Jesus, when, when this priest, Jesus, had offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, here's what he does. He sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus dies, he ascends into heaven. Hebrews says that he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And then the book of Philippians, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, Verse uh, 9 through 11, he says this, As a result, of, as a result God, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. Now Jesus is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, and God exalts him and gives him the name that's above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is Jesus' heavenly crowning moment. Now we know that according to the book of Revelation, chapters 19 and 20, and I know we don't want to touch those, those passages in there, but according to Revelation chapters 19 and 20, Jesus will come back one day, and he will not come back with a donkey. His, his coming back will be on a white horse followed by heavenly armies, and in that moment, he will come to judge and punish the ungodly. And in that moment, he will be crowned on this earth as the king that God had promised all the way back in the Old Testament. He's not only going to fulfill that, but he's going to fulfill the Davidic line of king where he will sit on the Davidic throne and he will rule as a conquering king. So when we get to Mark chapter 11 and we think this is the triumphal entry passage where they're going to crown him as king, this is not from God's perspective. He's king in heaven, and he will come back on earth to rule as a conquering king, but not now and not 2,000 years ago. Now, here's what is interesting about Jesus' ministries or the ministry that he had. For the last nine months prior to Mark, Mark chapter 11, scholars will debate what actually took place, but what, what is undisputable here, and here's what you have to understand, Jesus is all over Israel. He's doing his ministry throughout the land. He's all the way in the Galilean area, and he comes and he starts to zigzag his way around all the way down to this moment. He goes through Samaria. He stops in uh, Berea into Judea, and then he stops in Jericho where he heals a guy named Zacchaeus. And then he also heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. 
And then he arrives in a city called Bethany, which Mark 11 describes here. So remember, he's coming from Galilee. He's going all the way down. He gets to Jericho. He has the encounter with Zacchaeus, and he heals a blind man. And then he makes his way all the way down to Bethany. And in Bethany, he arrives most likely at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Yes, the one whom Jesus brought him back to life. Now, we know... For those of us who are believers, we know that God has a perfect plan and nothing comes out of his control. Way different than in my own house where I have my own plans and things sometimes don't work the way that I want to, especially with my kids. That's not God and that's not who he is. But everything has a purpose and this is not different for Jesus. That's probably my daughter again. But that is the first amen I got this morning. Once again, let the children speak. So Jesus has a purpose. And it's incredible that Mark actually does this in an unbelievable way. So I said to you that in, in chapters 1 all the way up to chapters 8, verse 30, Mark describes the identity of Jesus. But look what he says in verse 31 of chapter 8. Turn to your Bible in there with me just for just a second. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the experts of the law. Well, that's pretty clear here, isn't it, Jesus? No, it's not enough. Open your Bibles to flip in there, Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Here's what he says. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. Now he's clarifying some things that's going to take place. And after three days, he will rise again. Not only he's going to be handed over to them, and they will abuse him. They will kill him. Now he's going to raise again. Well, if that wasn't enough, Jesus gives another purpose. In chapter 10, verse 33, here's what he says. And he's talking all these things to his disciples. So listen to what he says. Right in the middle of this book, he starts to give his mission. And the mission here is this, verse 33 of chapter 10. Look. We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the experts of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely, and then they will kill him. Yet after three days, he will rise again. Do you understand the hope that he's giving us here? There's going to be pain and suffering, but there's going to be hope that's going to be coming to us because he will not stay dead. But here's a question for you. Did you notice in the three passages that I just read to you that Jesus proclaims to his disciples that he must be presented to the nation of Israel before the rejection of the leaders? He needs to present himself as the king in order that rejection will come and take him to the cross. His triumphal entry here serves then as God's final presentation of the Messiah to the nation of Israel and to the world. You see, Jesus' fulfillment here of his father's plans did not involve being crowned as king 
while going to Jerusalem. His plans was simply, his plan was simply, listen to this, to be obedient to his heavenly father's perfect plans. How do we know this? Because right before this passage in Mark chapter 11, Mark writes these words here in verse 45 of chapter 10. He says this, and this perhaps may be the most important verse in this entire book. He says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and how he's gonna do this? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' purpose is all over this middle section in the book of Mark. So now that we know this, let's jump into Mark chapter 11. Verse one, as they approach Jerusalem, who is they? Jesus, the disciples, and most likely all the crowd that was coming with him all the way from Galilee, all the way down for this special week of Passover. So as they approach Jerusalem near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, let's just stop here for a moment. As they approach Jerusalem, they arrive in Bethany, which means the place of unripe figs, okay? And then they, they make their way to Beth, Bethphage, which also means the place of young figs. So you can tell that they love figs in that area, right? There's lots of figs in there. As I mentioned to you, Bethany was the location of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in here. So if, you were, if I was in Jerusalem right now and I was looking east and I start to walk away from this, I would go through the Kidron Valley, which by the way, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, is the idea here. Kidron Valley to the other side to the Mount of Olives, which Jesus is going to be there in just a few days when he's going to spend a good amount of time praying and his disciples are going to spend a good amount of time sleeping. You will walk on the Mount of Olives to the top, which is about two to 300 feet above the area of Jerusalem, which is like 2,800 feet above sea level. You walk all the way to the top, and as you begin to make your way down to northeast of that, you would find the little village, most likely of Bethphage, which is about a mile away from Jerusalem. As you kept walking another mile, you would get to the city of Bethany. So those two cities that Mark introduces to us right now, they're, they're two miles apart or far away from this moment where Jesus is going to enter into the temple to glorify God with his own life. In the Mount of Olives, some very significant his historical facts or events have taken place here. And let me just give you some so you can understand the significance that Jesus is actually trying to communicate here by what he's going to accomplish. David escaped Absalom through the Mount of Olives in, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15. Solomon actually uh, raised and uh, erected like uh, idol worship places for his wives to worship in this very same location. It is here, too, that Jesus is going to weep over the, the nation as he realized how disobedient and how rejectful they have been of God's plans. Ezekiel here in the Old Testament, he witnessed the glory of God departing away from this city, from the Mount of Olives. And it will be here that the disciples will later on see Jesus ascending into heaven in Acts chapter 1. But it is also here that Jesus gives them a special request. Look with me in verse two and three. 
Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, what's the village ahead of you? They're in Bethany. Bethphage. All right? So as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? You must say, the Lord needs it, and it will bring back to you here soon. Now, first, let me give you some things. The village here, once again, is Bethphage, right? He's going, coming from Bethany into Bethphage. The second thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is going to commission two disciples. And what's amazing to me is that he, he keeps them unnamed. There's no name given here. There's no name that's presented to us. We don't know who those two guys are, but we know that there are two disciples. And they're going to enter the village, and they're going to try to find this colt that has never been ridden. Now, in the Old Testament, this action of riding a colt that's never been ridden was a, was a king type of entrance. It was, it was an, an entitlement as a privilege for a king to be able to do that. And according to Edwards here, an unbroken beast was regarded as sacred. Now third, Jesus is going to guide the disciples in how to answer a question. Now, you're talking about grown-up men in this situation. You're not talking about my six-year-old daughter who is a little shy, and she might say, Daddy, what should I say when somebody talks to me? We're talking about grown-up men here, fishermen. They don't need anybody telling them what to say, but this was such an unexpected request. Go find this coat that's never been written before. It's going to be tied to a post, and probably the question in their minds is like, what, what do I do if they ask me, why am I doing this? And Jesus gives them unbelievable direction here. But as the story unfolds, the biggest question for them, it is also the biggest question for us. And the question is this, how did Jesus know all these things? Did he plan his trip through an online agency? Did he have a travel agent guy that he knew from his synagogue back in Galilee? Did he use his computer to type up his route and where he was going to get his car and the next ride and all that? Or did he simply sneak out when the disciples were sleeping and met some people outside and organize his whole schedule for the week? Here's what we know. And I want you to listen to this because this is amazing. He knew the owner of the cult. We know this from a different gospel. He knew how the owner would answer the disciples. He knew where the animal would be. He knew the animal had never been ridden before. I mean, if I go to a car store and I looked at a car out there and I say, yeah, that's 100,000 miles in there, but I think that car, there's probably 2,000 on it. I, I can see the difference, but how do, you see, how do you realize the donkey has never been ridden before? He's, here's what he knows, too. He knows the disciples would need some, some help answering the question, why are you doing this? And he knew, listen to this, he knew what the owner of the animal believed 
because he gave the disciples the following answer. He says, the Lord needs it. St. Clair Ferguson says, Jesus' majesty and authority begin to shine through from the moment he began to plan his final entry into Jerusalem. It is deity all over. And if the Pharisees and the experts of the law and, and all those leaders didn't like him before, guess what? They will not like him now because now is deity being displayed. And I think this comes to our first lesson on your outline. The one who knows all things, and this is very simplistic, but understand the depth of this. The one who knows all things deserves to be trusted and obeyed. And we see that in how the disciples answer him. There's no questioning. There's no, but Jesus, I, I think, can, can we just maybe go to a different place? It's just full force obedience. Even though they do not know or understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Look at verses 4 through 6. Look at the disciples obeying the, Jesus, the, the request for the king. So they went and found a coat tied at a door outside in the street and untied it. Some people standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the coat? They reply as Jesus told them, and the bystanders let them go. Now, the disciples' immediate response here is obedience is, is actually pretty impressive, but not as impressive as their Savior's omniscience. The, the point here is not to say, man, you see those disciples, their, their obedience is just out of this world. No, the point of this is to say the Jesus, the, the, the Savior's knowledge is out of this world because he is out of this world. Not only they find the animal outside in the street, but they, they're actually, they, they were required to answer the question. And, and here's what's fascinating. According to Luke chapter 19, verse 33, Luke gives the person who asked the question and the, the person who asked the question according to Luke is actually the owner of the animal so we have Luke saying there's the owner in there and Mark saying that there's the bystander so the owner is surrounded by a, a multitude of people you talk about uncomfortableness can you imagine you send your kids to youth group on Wednesday nights and I say hey guys you know what I was just at Kroger down the street, a quarter of a mile here. Would you walk down there? I saw a yellow Corvette. I want you to approach that guy as he walks out of the store and you say, hey, you know what? My pastor needs it. <laughs> uh, it I would be in jail and your son would be in trouble. But people believe that in this time of the year, Entering Jerusalem, a city that was between 80 and 100,000 people would expand to over 2 million individuals. So as they approach this, they find the guy and they find the guy's crew in there and probably a bunch of other people who don't belong there who are probably like, what are you doing stealing that donkey? The Lord needs it. No words back from the owner. And guess what? You're going to get it back. We don't know how. You're going to get it back. I think what Mark's trying to do here is this. He's trying to emphasize the Lord's authority. 
his power, his deity, and not his humanity here, because he is, according to what Mark describes, he is our servant king. He came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this comes to our second lesson in your bulletin. It says this, even though many will reject him, the authority, power, and deity that Jesus displays demands from us proper, a proper response of faith, obedience, and submission as followers of the true king. You don't have to obey what Pastor Michael or Pastor David or the elders say. You only need to obey him. And as Jesus approaches this last entrance into Jerusalem, that is what he conveys. Now, that was the preparation. Now, let's focus on the journey, the last seven, uh, uh, five verses here from verse seven, uh, verse 7 through 11. Uh, here's what it says, verse 7 and 8. Then they brought the coat to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their clo- cloaks on the road, and others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Now, let's, let's evaluate this for a second. They bring the coat to Jesus, so the disciples are now coming back. They accomplish the task back there in Bethphage. They're bringing the coat back, probably back to Bethany, and Jesus is about to enter this. And as he does this, they take, the, they take their outer garments, the top garments, and they probably lay on this animal so that Jesus can actually sit comfortably in there. Now, remember I told you in the beginning, there's a crowd following this guy and the disciples, and there's probably lots of people watching what the disciples are doing for Jesus at this moment, and they are starting to imitate him. They take their stuff, they put on this animal. They literally, they make a saddle for Jesus. And consequently, this crowd follows suit. This, in one way, was a representation from the disciples and from the crowd of submission. The same one that I just said in lesson, chapter, lesson two, that we must submit ourselves to him. It was a lesson of submission as well as a lesson of joy Now, here's one thought that actually is very complicated, and it has never happened up to this moment. Jesus, up to now, he has never done anything similar to this. He walked all over the place, and he took a boat a few times to go different places. But he's never ridden an animal before. And I know for some of you, and I've met some of you, you have, you've, you know, ridden your horses and done things like that, would you ever, for the first time, you go into a city that has 80,000 people, like twice as big as Westfield, that in that week there will be 2 million people in there, would you choose as your mode of transportation a little donkey that has never been ridden before? Any volunteers? I see two hands up there, and I'll talk to you after the service. You wouldn't do this. This is unthinkable. And he's walked all over. This, this is the first time that he's going to do this. He's going to change his mode of transportation. But can you imagine? And this is, this is something that my mind has thought through this week. What if I was the animal, and in that moment, I had met the Creator personally? This animal was going to fulfill what he was created to do, 
And many times we reject what God has created us to do as his own children. He's going to take his master on a two-mile journey into the city so he can enter the temple. And sometimes we're unwilling to even spend our two-minute, three-minute devotional time. And I'm guilty of that. Here's what Mark's trying to do, I believe. I think he's trying to make a comparison with what was done in the past. In the Old Testament, there's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 9 where Jehu is crowned as king and he follows the same pattern where he enters the city riding on a donkey. So this right here, according to some commentaries, suggests that the spreading of garments under a person was a recognition of royal submission. But Mark does not really tell us why. However, the Gospel of Matthew does. So if you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verse 3 to 5. Matthew chapter 21, verses 3 to 5. Remember, Mark does not give us the reason, but Matthew will. Verse 3, it says this, If anyone says anything to you, you are to say the Lord needs them. I, now, needs them what? The animals. So there's, Matthew is saying there's two animals here. Jesus is going to ride into the city, the one that has never been ridden before, but next to it, there's going to be a second animal. So there's two animals here, all right, a donkey and a colt, according to what Matthew is trying to describe. And he says this, And he will send them all at once. So I'm bringing this back to us. Now, here's what it says. This took place, all this that, that Matthew and Mark and the Gospels, the four Gospels are trying to describe, this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. What, the, what prophet is this? The prophet Zechariah. It says this, Tell the people of Zion, look, your king's coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even though Jesus will be rejected uh, by the people. God will use this event in the history of the nation of Israel to actually bring the Messiah into the city to announce that this is his last week. Now, here's what Lane says, a commentator. He says that this method of entry indicates that Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem as a servant leader and not as a political conqueror. Remember what the nation of Israel wanted? They wanted a savior that would come and conquer the pagan nation that was oppressing them. But that's not what the God, what the God of the Bible had in, in mind for them. According to Judges chapter 10, when Israel's rulers wanted to present themselves as servants, they rode donkeys. But when they wanted to enter as military leaders, they rode horses. Revelation 19 and 20. You see the picture? But the disciples did not understand that. At this moment, they're going with the flow. They're obeying on a superficial level, but they do not understand this. And we know this because John chapter 12, verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things when they first happened. They would understand them later on after Jesus was glorified. And even though this is not God's coronation of Jesus here, he will use the praise and the adoration and the submission that the people are displaying here to allow Jesus to enter Jerusalem and the temple and to set the stage for what would come a week from now.
verse 9 through 11, Jesus is going to receive praise from the crowd. Both those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting. So this was a massive group of people going together. And here's what they shout, shouted. Hosanna, blessed is, the, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Did you notice that praise is being offered ahead, next to him, and behind him? And what they're saying here is, Hosanna, they're shouting this, which means save us now, save us now. This is an allusion to uh, Psalms 118, verse uh, 26, 25 and 26. And, and the greeting here, when it says here in Mark, look at this, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This was to be addressed to an individual when he arrived in the temple, followed by a general blessing to the crowd. So this was something that they used to do all the time. However, the one that Psalm 118 is describing here, it says, in the name of the Lord, simply means the Messiah, God's coming authority and his divine representative. This is significant because in Mark chapter 10, Mark makes this very important connection to the statement, blessed, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, that despite his rejection, Jesus would face a week from now He's emphasizing the significance of the promises. Listen to this. The promises that God has made all the way back in the Old Testament. If we trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob or Israel gives a blessing to his sons, and he blesses Judah by saying, the scepter will not depart from you. And then he says later on to David that a king will come out of your line. Those lines point to Jesus, and Jesus is entering him now as the fulfillment of that. Because he will be, as I said in the future, the one who will sit on an earthly throne, and that will be the throne of his Davidic covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. Now, if you are like me, You've made some promise that you broke. Can I, any hands here? Have you done that before? Am I the only, am I the only person here? All right, so it's become confession from the pastor now. I've broken many promises. But here's a God who is introducing the servant king who has not broken any promises. And if he has done that up to that point, guess what? This king will come back. And God will keep his promises once again. We know from scriptures that Jesus' kingdom will be a kingdom of salvation. It will, be a, it will be ruled by the descendant of David, which Jesus qualifies to, and it will fulfill all the promises made to David and all the other prophets in the Old Testament. His kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, glory, truth, and justice. So the focus cannot be the beginning of the week. Listen, the focus is not today. But what will happen to him at the end of the week when the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, gives himself for the sins of the world. And here's what we notice. And this is why 
this is not so much of a triumphal entry. Listen to how this passage ends. Verse 11, Jesus is going to approach Jerusalem with the goal of entering the temple. And here's what it says. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany, Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. Does this sound like a party for a king coming into town? Does this sound like a crowning that deserves the king to stay? Jesus walks in. He looks around. Literally what the text says, he looks around. And then he says, "Mm, it's too late. We need to leave. And he goes back on a two-mile journey back to Bethany. You would imagine if, if Jesus was being crowned and God was in favor of this, that Jesus would actually stay home. Have you ever met a king or heard of a king being crowned as king and all of a sudden he gets there and 30 minutes later he's like, yeah, I got to go home now. And his home is not in the place where he's just crowned as king. You've never heard this because it's never happened. And for Jesus, it's not different. His final destiny here on this day was not the crowning moment or entering Jerusalem, but to enter the temple. Edward says here that the temple was not only the heart of Israel's religious life, but also the symbol of its national identity. But here's what's most importantly. The temple was the place where God is reconciled to man, and that's why sacrifices were being offered. The task of Christ to come and to save his people from their sins would be accomplished not only today, but at the end of this week. And that's why he will come in this week and he will cleanse the temple because the temple is not a place where robbers and, and people selling their, 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 their products in there should be, should be placed because the temple is a place where God deserves to be worshipped. So Jesus enters the temple. He looks around. And this has happened before. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus enters the synagogue and he finds a man with a withered hand. And you remember that story. Mark chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says this. After looking around at them in anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to them, Men, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So, he, so the Pharisees went out, listen to this, went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians as how they would assassinate him. What became as a plot to kill him will end as a divine plan being applied for God to save the world in that same location. You talk about God being good. So Jesus walks in. He does a comprehensive inspection. And Jesus' comprehension survey here in the temple leads to grieve over the tragic reality that the temple had become the ineffectiveness of the sacrificial system, the hardness of people's hearts, and how they had mishandled the offense of their own sin before a holy God. And just as the day comes to an end, the crowds vanish and the whole scene comes to nothing. Just like the seed in the parable of the sower that receives the word with joy but has no root in them and has, lasts no 
time at all, the crowd dispersed mysteriously, just as mysteriously as it assembled. And here's the Messiah. He's veiled and unrecognized. Even when he stands at the center of Israel's faith, listen to this, the nation's symbolic identity, he stands alone. So let me give you two quick lessons here as we close our time together. Lesson number three. Just like those who follow Jesus and attempted to praise him, we must be careful not to mistake enthusiasm for faith, popularity for discipleship, knowledge for maturity, and success for spiritual vitality. Because if those things are the things that we're looking for in our life as a disciple of Jesus, we will come short and we will vanish Jesus just as fast as the crowd has vanished him on this day. And here's the last lesson. Christ accepts the crowd's outward praise of him. But he was keenly aware of their lack of faith, of, of their lack of inner faith. In the end, he is looking for sincere worshipers who possess fruitful faith. This is the ironic triumphal entry of Jesus. Father, we pray this morning that we would not only follow you because of the things we can get from you, but that we would follow you because we believe that you came to fulfill the word of our Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I can't imagine giving my only son or daughter or child to be able to come and die much less to die for people who do not deserve like me. And Father, as we evaluate this, may we truly say thank you for saving us. And may the, the fruit of discipleship that takes place in our lives be truthful just as you are truthful. Lord, we love you, but we thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name.